Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Renee O'Durring about a species-appropriate diet as the foundation of health. After completing her veterinary degree at the University of Queensland, she furthered her conventional training with additional study in areas of veterinary homeopathy and Chinese herbal medicine. Renee then went on to establish a holistic veterinary practice together with Dr. Henry Stevenson on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. She has a love for nutrition and is passionate about educating her clients on the true causes of disease and the path to health. Renee has been described as an earth mama who loves being outdoors, dancing, yoga, and cooking delicious vegan food for her and her family. Hi, Renee. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Pure Animal Podcast. How are you? I'm great, Sarah. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, I'm enjoying this sudden cold blast here in Sydney, but I, <laughs> I understand that you're a um, tropical lover, so you probably wouldn't be so yeah. happy. <laughs> Yeah, I like my balmy temperature. <laughs> You're living in the right place then. Yes. <laughs> um, before we mm-hmm. get into the um, the kind of the bulk of the podcast, I was just wondering if you could sort of share your background with us. Um, I, I understand you didn't actually always plan to be a vet, so just really interested to, to hear how you ended up as one and um, and particularly what sparked your interest in natural medicine. Okay, sure, yeah. So I wasn't one of those kids that grew up always knowing that I wanted to be a vet. I had a natural affinity and connection with animals for sure my whole life, but uh, veterinary science wasn't really on my radar. As a child, I had a best friend whose dad was a vet, but he worked in government industry with Mm. sheep, and it didn't seem like the most exciting (laughs) career to me as a child. So, um, And then I actually decided to become a chopper pilot. So I was at the brink of joining the army and then at the last minute decided I didn't want to commit nine years of my life to do that in order to learn how to fly choppers. And so I was at a bit of a uh, crossroad and um, serendipitously met a friend, a family friend who had come back from traveling overseas. So she'd been in the UK and had been working over there as a vet and I thought, oh, wow, well, that's a potential career for me. You know, I love travel and I love animals. And so Mm -hmm. I decided, well, I'm going to go study vet science. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I went off to uni and I did my five years of Bachelor of Veterinary Science and I loved the study. I loved the challenge and Mm -hmm. learning all about animals and working towards a career with animals. And so, yeah, I felt like I'd made the right choice. But then within my first year of graduating, though, I started to feel quite disillusioned and unfulfilled. Mm. It was like every patient that came through the door, we were basically prescribing one of three drugs. So it was either antibiotics or anti-inflammatories or cortisone or sometimes a combination of those. And so I started to really feel, you know, why had I spent five years studying at university when this was all that was involved in practicing medicine? Yeah. And, yeah, I really had this belief that there had to be more to healing animals and and that was what I wanted to achieve. And so I started looking for alternatives and um, right about that time, as, you know, so happens with the world, the universe sort of threw something in my path to open up another door. So I was working in country practice and one of the local hobby farmers had alpacas, which Mm. are... Obviously, the sweetest animals, they're delightful. <laughs> <laughs> and they brought one of their young alpacas, her name was Poppy, into the clinic. And she had this really nasty abscess on her face. 
We tried everything. We did you know, various antibiotics. We took swabs for culture and tried different antibiotics. We tried anti-inflammatories. We did surgery to clean out the abscess. We put drains in and absolutely nothing was fixing it. Mm. And so I was you know, obviously feeling quite frustrated. Yeah. And so I remembered Dr. Henry Stevenson. He'd done an hour lecture in our five years of study at um, the University of Queensland on holistic medicine. So I thought, oh, I'll get in contact with him and see if he can help me come up with an alternative treatment plan. Mm. So we discussed Poppy's case and he recommended two different homeopathic remedies. And so I stopped the conventional medicine and started the two homeopathic remedies. And within three weeks, the abscess was completely gone. Wow. That's so amazing. So, yeah, exactly. It was a really big wow moment. Yeah. It sort of it opened my eyes up to what was possible with holistic veterinary medicine and, and, yeah, started me on a different path where I felt like actually I could have a better impact. I could really, you know, lead to real healing for my patients instead yeah. of just this pharmaceutical approach. Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. And um, before you got got in contact with Dr. Stevenson, did you have a sort of interest in your own health um, in terms of sort of um, approaching it more holistically or was that the first Yeah, Yeah, time? no, I guess I did. I, my, a cousin of mine as a child was a naturopath, so I was, yeah. you know, I was familiar with the naturopathic practice and, and world and had chosen to utilise more natural medicine for my own health. I wasn't a person that really wanted to just use antibiotics if I had a sore throat and that sort of thing. I'd, yeah. I'd sort of be looking for alternatives. So yeah, I was, although I hadn't practiced, uh, hadn't studied any sort of alternatives at that point in time, I was familiar with yeah, the, the options. Oh, that's such a nice story. And you actually went on to um, become a founding partner with Dr. Stevenson, didn't you, um, in setting up yes. the clinic yes. in the Sunshine Coast? So yeah. can you tell us a bit more about the clinic um, and sort of what you offer? And I, I know that you've also got a podcast that comes out of that clinic too. So please feel free to share that. Okay, sure. Yeah, so uh, yes, I eventually moved back to Queensland from sort of rural New, New South Wales and started working with Dr. Henry. So by that stage, I'd worked for you know, more than a decade in a few different conventional veterinary practices and emergency medicine, mostly alongside very conventional vets, mm-hmm. some of which were quite open to integrative therapies and some very not so. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved back to Queensland, I approached Henry and said, you know, would you like me to come work for you? And so I started working with him and yes, it sounded like, I felt like like I'd finally found a bit that I could work with who had a similar healing philosophy mm, to me. So that was really freeing. Nice. Yeah. And then in 2015, an opportunity arose for us to open a, a new holistic practice together on a different premises. And so that's how the Natural Vets was born. Nice. So, yeah, we've got the Natural Vets, which is on the Sunshine Coast uh, in Forest Glen. And basically, we try and customise integrated solutions for every pet that we see. So it's a really individualised approach Mm. that primarily uses holistic modalities. So we are always seeking to try and understand what's causing the disease and the imbalance in the animal and correct those Mm -hmm. using things that that could be changing their diet or looking at what's going wrong with their lifestyle and using supportive things like herbs and other treatments to strengthen the animal because ultimately we want the animal to be strong enough to heal themselves, heal themselves yeah. rather than having to rely on, on you know, medicine to do that. Yeah. So we've got five vets on staff. We've all okay. got a wide range of interests, so yeah, nutrition, uh, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, plant medicine, that sort of thing. Mm, and, great. yeah, we're passionate about education, so that's how the podcast came about. So we've yeah. got um, a website with 
couple of ebooks and a few webinars and then the podcast that we release on a pretty regular basis on all different sorts of topics too. It is exciting sort of jumping into the podcast world. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you were such a big podcast fan um, before you launched your own, but for me, I feel very privileged to actually be a host of one because I'm a big podcast fan myself and it's such are a you? good way yeah. to get the, the message across these days because people are so time poor and um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's so a really convenient. useful platform, I think, mm. and it's, you know, it's nice for people to be able to, you know, often people are commuting long distances to work exactly. or you know, even doing the housework or something and you can just be listening yeah. to something and get more of an insight because it, yeah, it is often just a conversation so you're getting real information from real people. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. I wasn't, you know, much of a podcast fan myself actually when we started it, but my husband used to commute to Brisbane and so has listened to hours and hours and hours yeah. of podcasts <laughs> himself. And so that was when, you know, I sort of realised that, you know, people were really starting to take this up as a a way of educating themselves yeah. on different things. Great. So I know that you um, in particular are very passionate about nutrition um, and um, something that I have learned recently after listening to your podcast is about feeding a species-appropriate diet um, to sort yep. of set the foundation for for good health. Um, so yeah. let's jump into that. I'd really love if you can um, help me and our listeners understand um, what this sort of looks like um, in your practice. Yeah, so I guess with regards to how does it look at our practice, well, we don't sell any processed kibble at all. So we mm-hmm. only sell complete raw foods and then a couple of shelf-stable raw foods. So there's one that's freeze-dried or two that are freeze-dried actually and, and one that's air-dried or canned. So mm-hmm. all of the food that we sell is species-appropriate. And so by that I mean... It's feeding the animal the diet that it's designed to eat by nature. So yeah. it's really just common sense. You know, dogs and cats, they're not born with thumbs to open a bag. They're not born with, you know, they don't have ovens out in nature. They don't cook their food. Yeah. They're not designed to be eating this really highly processed cooked food from a bowl. They're, they're hunters primarily and they also scavenge. Yeah. And so I believe that their diet should reflect this and be made up of, of fresh, real food rather than something that's been made in a lab. Mm-hmm. So when we're deciding what an animal should be fed, we we're just considering, you know, the basic things that, it, that it's been dealt by nature. So it's anatomy and it's physiology and it's evolutionary requirements and we're looking to what nature dictates in order to have that foundation for perfect health. And so that's what I call species-appropriate nutrition. Mm-hmm. Yep, so, yeah, that means that we're feeding animals food that they would naturally source themselves in the wild as much as possible, but also making sure that the balance of correct foods is offered. So some people will interpret it as, oh, well, my dog just needs to eat meat, but mm. that's very, uh, you know, that's a very in, um, imbalanced diet. It's devoid of a lot of nutrients that they would be obtaining in the wild yeah. from the organs of the prey or the bones or foraging plant foods, for example. So we need to make sure that in an urban environment when we're providing a raw species appropriate diet that we're getting all of the nutrients that they need in there and making sure that it is balanced. Okay. And so how do you achieve that? Um, when we're just talking about dogs at the moment. How do you yep. actually achieve that balance? Do you do you have some sort of program that you use that balances the rations or do you just try and give them as much as what they um, sort of replicate as much as what they would get from the wild and, and assume that that's going to supply everything they need in the right ratios? Yeah, so it depends what uh, the client's capable of. Because some clients, as we've mentioned, are you know, very kind poor and they just want something that's easy. So mm-hmm. there's a number of really uh, good quality, correctly balanced complete raw foods out there these days. So that means that the animal is going to get all of the nutrients that they need, but they also do then need to be doing some chewing because 
you know, just providing an unlimited food all the time isn't necessarily a great thing either for lots of reasons like yeah. mental health and yeah. emotional balance and whatnot. If a client is willing to go the whole way and, and prepare a food themselves, then we've got a number of recipes that are all balanced to okay. NRC guidelines. And so we provide a customised diet plan for, for each pet depending on what their needs are, whether right. there's disease that needs to be addressed or they've got gut sensitivities or they've got allergies or they've got weight issues, then we mm-hmm. customise that diet plan to suit them. Okay. And how does uh, the diet sort of look different between dogs and cats? Um, what do you include in dogs that you might not include in cats when you're designing? Yeah, so there's a few differences. Um, Dogs, you know, they're both predators, but dogs tend to scavenge more than cats. So cats are obligate carnivores. Mm -hmm. So they really, uh, they they must have animal protein in their diet in order to get nutrients that they can't make themselves. Whereas dogs are what's called a facultative carnivore. So, you know, they can, they certainly will hunt prey, but they can also survive on other foods. So Dogs actually do better with a bit more plant matter in their diet and, you know, you'll often see dogs out foraging grass and chewing on grass when they're out walking, that sort of thing. So it's very natural for them to eat plant foods and cats will do that to a degree as well, but it's more just to get things moving through the gut. They don't rely on a lot of plant food. They don't require it in their diet. So with a cat, you're looking more at a real prey model-based diet. So it's essentially muscle, meat, organ, meat, bones and a very small amount of plant matter with Mm -hmm. a few other sort of healthy fats and things to make sure it's balanced. Whereas with dogs, we tend to include a little bit more plant matter in the diet to make sure that the acid-alkaline balance is, is in the correct homeostasis so that things like, the, you know, the urine's not too acid, it's not burning the grass, those sorts of things. Yeah, sure. At home. Okay. And um, sort of going a little bit off topic, but I know that there's some sort of newer diets out on the market for dogs, I would hope not for cats, but that are entirely vegan. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so I'm I'm vegan myself. Mm-hmm. I do understand, you know, there are a few clients out there that are vegan and are very much not willing to feed their pets any animal protein. They don't want to contribute to the you know, the suffering that's involved in animal production yeah. in- industries is usually their reasons. But from a veterinary perspective, I I don't necessarily advocate for vegan diets for dogs or cats, particularly cats. Mm. Cats, it's it's a really unnatural diet for them. As I've just said, they're an obligate carnivore yeah. and you know, they're, they're the perfect carnivore. They're really an amazing predator. And so I have certainly known clients and supported them to be able to provide a vegan diet to their animals, but I always warn them up front that the animal may not thrive on this diet. We need to watch a few things like the quality of the coat and you know, the health of the mouth and all sorts of, sort of things that we can be watching for. And if there's any decline in their health, then, then I encourage them to go back to more of a natural species appropriate diet. And sometimes you can find a balance where there's, you know, there's higher levels of plant foods in the diet, but it's balanced out by things like, you know, if they've got their own chooks, so feed eggs and, you know, yeah. they can get some wild caught fish and those sorts of things that they're a little bit more comfortable with. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think that a 100% vegan diet is necessarily a healthy diet for an animal that's not designed by nature to eat that way. Mm. And do you ever experience, or do do your clients ever experience, um, a, along with the coat changes and different things, um, behavioural type symptoms that might develop from feeding um, either a vegan diet or some sort of dramatically unbalanced or unnatural diet? Um, not so much vegan diet. I haven't seen any behavioural changes in other than one patient did become a bit lethargic. Um, mm. But, you know, no sort of you know, fears or reactive behaviours, nothing okay. like that. 
Okay. Um, yeah, when a diet's really unbalanced, though, then, uh, you know, that's not just, not specifically saying a vegan diet, but, you know, the things like just the raw meat or something, for example, then you can, can potentially run into issues with the biochemistry of the body and that can lead to you know, a malfunctioning brain, basically. Which yeah, can, sure. Yeah, impact yeah. behaviours, for sure. And so... I'm guessing that um, every patient that comes to see you, even for sort of just general health checks, um, has they, they have the option to be prescribed a specific diet by you. Correct. In terms of certain common conditions that you see in practice, do you find any that really respond better than others to a change in diet from a processed diet to a diet such as this? And is there sort of um, specific things that you would do for specific conditions um, with the diet? Are you able to sort of just explore mm. that a bit? Yeah. So, you know, I would say almost every condition that we see in practice benefits from a change to a more natural diet. Mm. So that, that's one of the first things that we do with our patients is, is, is to get them off a really highly processed food in almost every circumstance. And sometimes that can be done quite quickly and sometimes it needs to be done a, a more in a different sort of gentle transition way. Mm. And so, you know, the common conditions that we're seeing in epidemic proportions these days are things like obesity and diabetes and Cushing's disease and thyroid disease, kidney issues, gut issues, allergies, arthritis, mm. um, and obviously cancer as well. All of these conditions the pet does better when they're on a diet that is has less toxicity, so it's less processed. Yeah. When we're talking about a processed food, there's toxins that are inherent both in the ing- ingredients and then they're also formed by the processing techniques themselves. Mm-hmm. And so over time, those toxins can damage the body and that can lead to disease. And so that's one of the issues with processed pet foods. And then the other issue is by nature, by the very nature of kibble, it needs to be high in carbohydrate to sort yes. of stick it together. And so even if it's a grain-free food, it's still too high in carbohydrate for most animals. And, and that high-carb influx constantly into the body has been proven to contribute to inflammation. There's copious evidence these days supporting how low-carb diets minimise inflammation in the body. And I certainly see that that's true for our pets, for sure. In terms of... Um, you're saying the reduction in toxins for not feeding a processed diet. Does that mean that you recommend that all of the foods that um, your patients eat have to be organic to really reduce that? If feasible for the client. So that that is my preference, but I understand that it's not always financially possible for every person. So, um, yeah, if we're dealing with a a pet that has cancer, then it's really crucial to get as many toxins out of their lifestyle and their diet and their environment as you possibly can. Um, But, yeah, for other people, you know, feeding organic, especially if you've got, you know, a 40-kilo dog or something, it, it may not be an option for them. So we try and, you know, find a middle ground that, that's going to work. And yeah. just as an example for, um, say, a dog with Cushing's disease or a cat with um, hypothyroidism, are you able to run us through, I mean, you don't have to go right into specifics, but what a diet might look like um, sort of between those two conditions, How what you might add to the diet, what you might take away um, to treat those different conditions, just as an example. Mm. Yeah, so... Uh, we do often use uh, traditional Chinese medical food therapy principles okay. when we're customising diets for our patients. And so for a Cushing's disease dog, for example, when you look at what's happening biochemically in the body, it, it's a, there's a process of insulin resistance going on. And so it's really crucial for those animals that they're on an extremely low starch diet. Mm-hmm. And so we would provide a diet plan that has very minimal to low to no starch and try and, and that, that's almost going to be a raw 
like we've already discussed, a species-appropriate diet. So it's definitely getting them off the kibble and any sort of canned foods or rolls that have got starch in them mm-hmm. and getting them over to more meats, organ meats, pureed plant matters, meaty bones, that sort of thing in the correct balance for them. And depending on the health state of the animal, sometimes that needs to be cooked initially and sometimes we can go straight over to raw. Yeah, sure. Okay. A cat with hypothyroidism is more a hot, inflamed, uh, typically sort of dehydrated case. And so, again, they're going to benefit from getting off kibble because that's a processed, really dehydrated food. Mm-hmm. And it's almost drawing water out of the cells to be, for it to be digested. So we want to make sure that they're going onto a more moisture-rich diet, which mm-hmm. obviously is raw as well. Raw food contains a lot more moisture, so 75 to 80% moisture than a kibble, which is like 8 to 10%. Mm. So we'd be going over to, yeah, more of a prey model-based diet with the cat and Cats with dogs, you can usually go cold turkey when you're sort of changing from one right. to the next. Okay. Whereas with cats, it's a it's a lot more of a process to get them, particularly when they're kibble addicted, over to fussy a raw natural yeah. diet. Yeah, it's a, there's a bigger process involved because they're you know they, they don't often even recognise that as food in the beginning. So we need to basically coach them through it and, and support the owner to, to go through that process. Right. Okay. So do you recommend just starting to introduce? Say a teaspoon in with their normal kibble, um, and and if they if the cat just refuses to eat it, do you have some sort of approach there? Yeah, so there's lots of sort of tricks and tips for cat owners. So uh, in the beginning, you would first of all get them off like your buffet style feeding regime, where the food's just out all the time. Yeah. So you do want to go more to a set meal because that creates hunger, which means they're more likely to investigate new food. Yeah. So typically you just go to two meals per day, put the food down for 20 minutes, pick up what's left, and then they don't get fed again until later on that day. Yeah. And then when you put the meal out, so you'd start, instead of going straight from kibble to raw, we usually go to a canned food as an interim diet. But okay. if they don't accept the canned food straight away, then it's a matter of, yeah, putting a little bit out at a time next to the dry food initially and then trying to mix it in. And, you know, sometimes you can use tempters. So some cats love, for example, like a squeeze of the tuna bone out of a can. Yeah, or a those broths and things, cheese. yeah. Yeah, those sorts of foods. And that can encourage them to try the new food. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you'll start to do the same thing with the raw. So once they're on the canned food, then next to that bowl, of canned, you'll put a few, not too much to overwhelm them, just a few little pieces of cut up meat, cut quite small because they won't have the jaw strength to really chew through chunky oh, meat. Oh, right. Okay. So even going from yeah, kibble so to, to meat. Even going from kibble. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, because they, yeah, I mean, they're not a chewing species, you know, they don't, they can't move their jaws in a lateral motion like we yeah, do. So they're, they're they're, they've never yeah. really chew their food, but yeah. they, they pretty much just you know, crunch and swallow. And yeah, so right. when they get to like a chunky piece of meat, they have to do a lot more tearing and shearing to get through that. Okay. And particularly with a, a bone, it's even, it's, there's a lot more jaw strength required. So yeah, a kibble yeah. cat won't be able to go straight to that step. Yeah. Gosh, cats are a delicate species, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> They're unique, that's for sure. <laughs> I um, actually just euthanized one of my patients this oh, morning, a dear 22-year-old cat, oh, which is gosh, just amazing. 22? She, uh, she was such a, oh, a grand so old dame. Yeah, yeah, it was really sad for yeah, the family because sure. she's just been around forever. But yeah, yeah. she was beautiful. Oh, and I'm sure, was she under your care for a few years? 
Yeah, she was, yeah. yeah. We've done a few dentals on her over the years yeah. and, yeah, changed her diet as well in the beginning. And, yeah, yeah, she was really healthy, actually, right up to the end. Even all of her blood results, everything were absolutely perfect. Wow. But she ended up having almost like a stroke condition. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Oh, dear. Well, I guess at 22, something's going to give eventually, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sad yeah. as it is. Um, mm. And just, I'm just interested in this sort of change from a processed diet to a um, more species-appropriate diet. Do you mm. often see any um, sort of adverse reactions to changing the diet in terms of, mainly I'm thinking of um, GI sort of signs? Mm. Is, that, is that quite common? Yeah, it, well, it can be if it's not done correctly. So mm. I've got a good example, actually, a, a geriatric patient who's, who's now one of our our patients. Her family had decided to transition her over to a raw diet, so she's a golden retriever, and um, went off to a, a raw food company who are very experienced with raw feeding, but um, the guidance given was to transition her immediately over to raw food, which is what we would typically do as well, but as a sort of special technique in doing that, but also to start feeding bones straight away. And okay. in her case, that was actually a big mistake. Yeah. Because, um, it's a lot on the Yeah, the, the, bones, yeah the bones are, that's, you know, that's the hardest component of their diet for mm. them to digest. And in an older dog, usually the stomach acid is depleted. It's not very strong. And they're often also depleted in minerals like zinc, which is really crucial for the formation of the stomach acid. Mm. And so she was fed bones and they made her quite sick and she got a really nasty diarrhea that mm. went on for, uh, it was nearly two weeks in the end and she had to be treated with antibiotics. So oh, then the client got in contact with us and we took her through a much more gentle transition process. So rather than going straight from kibble to raw, we put her onto a freeze-dried food. So ah, okay. with freeze-dried food, there's no back there's no risk of bacterial gastroenteritis yeah. because of the freeze-drying process. Yeah. So we put her onto that first and then after a number, number of weeks, we transitioned her to a raw diet and then after a couple more weeks or more, she was then able to handle bones. But yeah. So it's that sort of gentle transition. So it's not it's not necessarily you mix the raw food in with the kibble because that can lead to lots of issues in dogs because of the way the foods digest. You know, they digest at very different rates and there's uh, different okay. components in the diet that require different sort of parts of the biochemistry to digest really well. And so okay. when you're mixing the two together, often you'll get fermentation and issues in the gut and, and gut issues. So that can be a problem. So we do advocate for a, a quicker transition, but we do that either by, in a healthy dog, using something like bone broth and feeding that in yep. place of their food for a day or two and then going over to raw, mm -hmm. or in a dog like a you know a, an older patient who's obviously going to probably be more sensitive to a raw diet, then we, we use something like a freeze-dried dry diet as a transitional food yep. before we take them to raw. And um, yep. you mentioned, um, obviously, you know, one of the, the biggest sort of controversies with feeding raw diets is that risk of bacterial contamination. Um, yeah. How how do you sort of counsel people who are a bit scared of that um, or who are a bit on the fence about raw diets? Because I know that there's it's sort of one of the most controversial issues discussed out yeah. there um, a lot of the time and, and definitely the risk of infection is one of the big ones. So um, mm. What, mm. Do, what is your take on that? Yeah, so there's certainly that belief amongst amongst practitioners that raw meat's dangerous mm. because of the bacterial load on it and it leads to elevated levels of bacteria in the gut and the stool and that can put both the dog and the human at risk when handling the stool of things like salmonella toxicity. Yeah, sure. So first of all, I, you know, there's a couple of studies that have, you know, they've shown that that's not the case. So 
There was a study in Finland that showed that there was no clear link at all between raw feeding and the shedding of zoonotic pathogens in the feces of dogs. Okay. So there is studies out there. There was another one that showed that there was no difference between a raw meat or a kibble diet in salmonella or cuts. Really? Like that during the spill. Yeah. So okay. there's, there's studies out there that have shown that, that, that you know, this sort of controversial belief around bacterial load is is not something to be worried about. But mm-hmm. the thing is, all raw meat does have a bacterial load and some's higher than others. So I think chicken is one of the highest because yeah. of the way it's processed. Yeah. But a dog and a cat, they're designed by nature to handle that bacteria. So yeah. that's the natural design is to be is they're set up to kill that bacteria so that they don't get sick. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to eat this sort of food in the wild. Yeah. But the key thing to remember is that they can only do that when they're fed an appropriate raw diet. So if they're coming off kibble, like my geriatric patient, they don't have a strong enough stomach acid. It's been compromised mm. by the high starch diet over time. They may be depleted in minerals as well because often a lot of the minerals in these processed foods are synthetic minerals that they may not necessarily be bioassimilating very yeah. well. And so you're going to have a compromised gut physiology that won't handle raw meat well. So it's not raw meat it's the, that's the problem. It's the altered physiology from yeah. feeding the kibble yeah. that's the problem. That makes sense. And so that's why we need to go through that process of identifying their weak points and then talking through a gentle transition if that's what's required. Mm. And then you're going to have a dog that's on a raw diet and, and not having any of the problems. And it's very rare. I actually can't think of a single case where we've had a problem with gastroenteritis with a transition. Okay. That's the only one that I've seen, and that was based on somebody else's advice. That's yeah, why it sure. occurred. And even when people are um, cooking, well, not even cooking, of, are making the diet themselves, um, obviously the you know the, the purchased raw diets um, should be... You would, you would assume would be a little safer than if people were buying the meat and the storage conditions weren't known. Do you find any difference there? Yeah, so we do test some store samples from different, you know, different patients for different reasons and, you know, sometimes things like cattle adapter will show up and uh, it, that it varies what's going on with the diet. The, the complete raw diets that are made by companies that are testing their food on a regular basis should technically be safer. Yeah. If you're feeding human-grade meat, you know the risk is mitigated somewhat to something like pet-grade meat, but there is definitely bacteria alone on all meats. You know that's actually even meat for human consumption as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, someone like an immunocompromised person does need to be careful when when handling raw meat types of foods. Yeah. And follow your safe food handling practices like. Yeah. No washing the knives well, or even preparing it in a different area of the kitchen, um, and then making sure that the still is picked up with gloves, all those sorts of things. Yeah, just, sure. Just to be on the safe side. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And do you recommend freezing if they're buying the meat and making the diet themselves? Do you recommend freezing it first to reduce? You that can risk? freeze that. Yeah. So that can help, particularly with a, a, a few parasites. And yeah. if you're if you're hunting food yourself, it's often crucial to do that because there can yeah. be all sorts of parasites that aren't always easily. Identified, so yep. you do need to freeze for a period of time before using the meat. And apart from um, the risk of bacterial contamination, is there any other sort of common worries that people who might be a little um, scared of raw diets um, will? Yeah, well, the come big one would be feeding bones for sure. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. a common concern both amongst practitioners and amongst pet owners as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we should address that. Certainly, there are some bones that, in my opinion, are not safe to feed. Yeah, so such I've as? seen issues with chicken. Chicken necks would be one. So I've seen okay. 
constipation, particularly in, in, in like toy breeds or cats yeah, okay. with very small pelvic outlets. They can lead to constipation because chicken necks are about 70% roughly bone cartilage to meat, whereas something like a carcass is more like 45% bone to meat. So it's a much higher bone ratio. Yeah, okay. It's harder to move that through when there's a, a bigger load all at once. But we've also seen issues with choking on chicken necks, so that sort of long slippery mm. that the dog can try and swallow whole. And, um, you know, that can even lead to death in a really unfortunate scenario. Um, yeah. Occasionally, dogs will get parts of the bone stuck across the hard palate up on the, yeah, the roof of their mouth as well. Yeah, definitely seen in practice. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, dogs will crack their teeth on some bones yeah. too. So, you know, if you think of a beef bone, for example, it's designed to bear the load of a very heavy animal. Yes. And so they're extremely dense. So most beef bones are not suitable for dogs. It's highly likely that they will crack their teeth on them, and that's mm-hmm. one of the concerns of veterinary dentists, and so that's often why they'll say to avoid bone feeding. Okay. But if you think of something like a poultry bone, so a chicken carcass or a turkey net, you know, poultry are animals that are designed to fly, so their bones are very light, they're air-filled, and so they're not as dense, and they're typically much safer to feed for a lot of reasons. So okay. other than chicken necks, I would say you know, things like turkey wings, turkey necks, um, duck feet, chicken carcasses and, and other things like pig strutters are, are fine to feed as well. Okay, um, and so turkey yeah, necks You do are... need to be aware that there's, there's potential danger. You know, yes. There's those random events like the bone getting stuck or choking. Yeah. And so I would always say feed, feed bones supervised. But you know, on the other side of the story, there's lots of problems with pet food recalls and contamination issues and toxic events and deaths. So yeah, you're weighing up you know, two very different things. You yeah. just need to decide which you're more comfortable with. Yeah, of course. And just out of interest, so the turkey neck tends to be okay because it's larger and it has more muscle meat on it compared to the chicken exactly. neck? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah more, more muscle to bone ratio. Okay, yeah. great. And apart from bones and the bacteria, there's not really any not. Um, risks that, that you sort of come across with a raw diet? They're the two main ones, really, mm. in my experience, yeah, and just, the, you know, that transition phase needs yep. to be handled correctly to make sure that it goes smoothly. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah, I would say that that's, they're the main two that I've yeah. seen in practice. I can't think of any others that have yeah, been Yeah, no, neither can I. And after someone has, um, you know, after, after someone, after their pet <laughs> has completely transitioned to a raw diet and is doing well, yep. Do um, owners usually see improvement in whatever condition you're treating or just general health very quickly or what's the sort of time frame that you might expect to, to see an improvement just from that diet change? Yeah, well, it will depend on the underlying health status of the animal and their age and you know, how much vitality mm. they have. Um, in some cases, it can be very rapid. You know, within a few days, we've had clients calling us saying, I can't believe the difference. I've got so much more energy, oh, the, nice. the quality, the coat feels different, the ear infections improved. Now, those sorts of things can yep. be fast. Whereas other patients that are dealing with more chronic disease that's been going on for some time, it could be a few months of a concerted approach that factors in a few things before you're starting to see really obvious benefits. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but typically, certainly, you'll see the energy lift quite quickly. The skin and the coat, the quality of the coat and, and the health of the skin should improve. You'll often find that you know animals that are suffering with arthritis become a bit easier in their joints. The yeah. weight starts to become more optimal. Yeah. They don't suffer from things like pancreatitis and ear infections as often yeah. or at all. So, yeah, yeah they're things that you, you can definitely expect. And um, apart from feeding um, sort of just these unprocessed um you know, meats and small amount of plant matter. Do you routinely supplement 
with um, herbs or um, minerals or vitamins or anything else, um, or even um, for those patients who are transitioning, do you ever use sort of HCL supplements to improve the stomach acid or anything like that? Or do you just sort of just try and focus really on the foods? We we definitely put the focus on food. Often if you get the, the food right, then a lot of other things will iron themselves out naturally. Mm-hmm. But it will depend on what's going on with each individual patient and what the client's planning to do with the diet as well. So sometimes we will use a whole food supplements or specific supplements for different conditions. So um, there's a couple of supplements that we use have got that have got a various, you know, varied types of whole foods in them that are providing lots of micronutrients and things that could otherwise be missing from the diet, especially, mm-hmm. for example, if they're not including organ meats. Yeah. Uh, so we will include those where necessary. We will certainly customise and prescribe specific uh supplements when it's necessary as well but that would be based on the overall picture and diagnostics that we've yeah, done for that course. patient so we might for example be doing you know, hair tissue mineral analysis to look at what's happening with the minerals in their body um, we can be doing obviously allergy testing to try and work out which foods are suitable and which aren't um, mm-hmm. and then looking at yeah what's been going on with their medical history and, and whether we need to do things to support things like hydrochloric acid production and, and yeah. yeah mineral content and so if we're advising a just a general practitioner in a conventional practice, um, someone who's really open um, and interested in nutrition. I, I know when I was in practice, I got bombarded with questions from people around diets and, um, you know, a lot of the time, a lot of people get their information off different forums and internet sites and things. So what would you advise for someone um, who is getting bombarded with these questions, how they could sort of confidently offer the similar advice to you on a species-appropriate diet in that conventional clinic setting um, to try and Mm, sort of mm. fit in with with the rest of the clinic, but also um, be able to advise on the right sort of diet? Well, the first step really is to get educated. You you can't be providing nutrition education with what's provided currently at university level. No, yeah. um, it's, It's just so minimal for particularly companion animal practice that there's no way that we could consider ourselves qualified to um yeah just be discussing nutrition uh, mm-hmm. for companion pets so it's all about doing your research and getting educated and there's a number of courses out there these days for companion animal nutrition so you can take things to the next level okay and you know, obviously speaking with other holistic practitioners that have been doing this for decades as well as is a great resource reading yeah. lots of books on the topics and then really it's just coming back to common sense as well you know yeah. for, for me it just makes no sense to be feeding an animal a highly processed food that comes out of a bag that's formed in a lab when nature dictates that they should be eating a a very different type of food. And it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm anti-science. I'm very much a scientist with the way I do my research. um, But, you know, science is essentially it's the study of the physical and natural world and observing what's going on and then experimenting and trying to work things out. So it's not about saying nature doesn't know what's going on. It's actually more about the study of nature and, and trying to you know, mimic that in a way. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, we need to come back to those that sort of root level to be able to provide the patients that we're treating with a diet that's suitable for them. Yep. But yeah, best, that's good advice. Definitely just getting educated. And so um, what's what course did you do when you um, were sort of trying to educate mm-hmm. yourself more on this? Yeah, so the, I've studied traditional Chinese veterinary medicine and mm-hmm. a, a huge component of that is about 
nutrition. Ah, oh, right. And then I've also done a Bachelor of Veterinary Homeopathy as well, which part of that is also focused on nutrition too. Okay. And then there's also, um, you know, there's various colleges offering integrative courses these days. So um, the College of Integrative Therapies is one of them and they've mm. got courses in companion animal nutrition as well. So uh, that's a really great entry point for someone if you're not willing to go and do a whole, you know, two-year grad diploma in something yeah. like I did. And yep. you can... You can start just with the nutrition component, which really is the foundation for so much else. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I believe those um, CIVT courses are all online as well, which makes they them are. a lot yep. more accessible. Yeah, all online. Actually. Yeah. That's great. You can do it wherever you are. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, this has been a great episode. Um, is there anything else before we sort of wrap mm-hmm. up that you are burning to share with our listeners about this topic? Um, yeah, I guess if there's pet families out there that aren't feeling supported by their vet and they really do want a raw feed, then just know that there there are experts out there that are willing to support you. So mm. speak to an expert and then make sure that you transition appropriately and then make sure that the diet you are feeding is correctly balanced. You know, don't think that you can just get away with feeding meat and not much else because yeah. you're not going to be doing the right thing by your pet. Yeah. And for practitioners out there that are you know open to learning more about raw diets, you know, don't don't be stuck in the the sort of fear base of we need to be worried about you know the potential damage for bones or you know the salmonella toxicity those sorts of things because there's plenty of studies out there that show that we don't need to be worried about that we need to go back to looking at how our patients are designed what they're set up to eat from a natural perspective and and start observing the changes and you'll be surprised at what you learn along the way. Oh, that's a really nice note to finish on. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Before you go, Renee, are you able to share your um, the details of, of your clinic and um, how people can get in touch and also about your podcast as well? Okay, sure. So yeah, I'm Dr. Renee from The Natural Vets and our website is just www.thenaturalvets.com.au. So you can find our podcast on the website. It's one of the tabs at the top on the homepage. And on the website, we've also got an online store and in there we've got some online learning modules. So there's some webinars okay. and some e-books in there too, Great. which there's a couple of e-books on nutrition. So there's one about the problems with processed pet foods and there's one for raw feeding for dogs and one for cats. So they're great resources, yeah, uh, awesome. both for practitioners wanting to learn more and also for, for pet owners too. So we're located on the Sunshine Coast, but we do offer distance consultations as well. Okay. So we can work integratively with other vets uh, don't yet have the knowledge or the expertise in these areas to provide the support for their clients who are wanting to do things like treating more. Yeah, sure. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing those details. I'm sure many people will probably be flocking to the website, hopefully. <laughs> and thanks for taking time out of your day um, today. It is a Friday, so I know that um, Fridays, I, I know you're not working today, but Fridays can be can be busy for practitioners, um, as I remember. Yeah, it's actually a public holiday up here today. Oh, so it is? Is yeah, it's a show oh, holiday, yeah, which is okay. a random local thing that happens every year. So oh, well, everyone's thanks. off enjoying the sunshine, which is that's lovely. Good. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry that you've had to um, take time out of your sun, sunny public holiday <laughs> to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully we can chat again soon. Uh, I've really enjoyed the discussion today. It's, nutrition is something I'm really passionate about as well. Um, so it's been really interesting talking to you and you've definitely cleared up a lot of um, questions I had in my head. So hopefully... Um, our listeners feel the same I'm sure they do that's great yeah hopefully that's helped a few other people and thanks so much yeah. for the opportunity hopefully it will help yeah get some more people educated about what's possible with raw feeding yeah absolutely 
Well, thanks again, Renee, and enjoy your long weekend. Thank you, Sarah. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and this is the Pure Animal Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast today, please feel free to hop onto iTunes and give us a rating and review.